Hey there, it's Rob from Brightspot and I wanted to share something I discovered the other day which I was quite excited about which is a couple of weeks ago I discovered that this little show which we started back in the autumn of 2019 when the world felt quite a different place. Three and a bit years later it's now been listened to more than a hundred thousand times I just discovered and I appreciate that might not seem like a big deal to you but for me who's uh, been all through these ups and downs and this journey to create this show to help fundraisers. It feels like quite a milestone. So my main thing I wanted to say is thank you ever so much for listening, whether you've listened to just a couple of shows or you've been subscribing for a couple of years. If you've ever mentioned this show to a colleague or if you've ever managed to use any of the ideas in your fundraising, thank you ever so much for supporting and helping us to grow it. And the other thing is that I was reflecting on a situation whereby inevitably the number of people who listen regularly to the show nowadays is far greater than back in those early days when we were just trying to get things going and build some momentum and let people know about the show. And what that means is if you started listening to the show within the last year or two, there's a really good chance that you've never heard some of the early episodes that we created. And what's interesting about that to me is many of the issues that we covered in those early shows are still as relevant today as they ever were then. And also there's several of them that we got really great positive feedback from people about how it was helping them in their fundraising. So what I've decided to do is when I get a chance, I'm gonna take some of those that were very popular from the archive and reshare them this year. So with that in mind, this episode is all about the thorny issue of how do you get your board to invest in fundraising? It was first published in December 2019. Do let me know what you think. So here is episode five from our archive. Hey there, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode five of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas and inspiration for how to raise more money, love their job and make a bigger difference. And on this episode, have you ever wished your charity would invest more in fundraising? Or if you're a fundraising head or director, have you ever wanted to ask for greater investment in fundraising, but not known how to go about it? Well, then you're gonna find this episode really interesting because we're gonna dive deep into how to go about getting your trustees and senior leadership to make that crucial decision to invest. The episode is with an excellent fundraiser and fundraising leader called Adam Human, who's currently director of fundraising at the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. Adam Human, can you hear me? I can hear you, great to be here. Hi Rob. Uh, thanks for joining us, Adam. I, I know you're as, as busy as ever at the moment. Um, so I, I know the listener doesn't know this, but I, I've uh, known and worked with you for many years and your latest job, uh, let me get this right, your Director of Engagement at the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. Just uh, initially, um, what does that include? Is that, it's more than just fundraising, isn't it? That's more than just fundraising. So I look after the fundraising advocacy and communications and Girl Guiding as a Movement works with 10 billion girls in 150 countries throughout the world. Okay, massive job, massive opportunity, massive mission. Um, I'm so grateful you made time to join me on the podcast because um, there's this crucial topic, I think. I've, I've read several blogs and I've seen several people on conference platforms almost speaking about and almost haranguing leaders of fundraising that are fundamental to grow your fundraising 
is to secure more investment into fundraising. And just occasionally there are a few helpful tips there, but overall I have found myself agreeing that it's needed, but myself and the other people in the audience, we wanted to do it, but we, it's just a quite a hard, difficult thing to do. We didn't, so I wanted more of the how uh, one goes about that. Um, and um, I, I know you gave a talk at our breakfast club a few months ago in which you unpacked three or four specific things you seem to have done and you really helped the audience not least because you've done you've gone and done it three times so I know I'm getting ahead of myself here but do you want to just uh without so much going in into the how in, initially gives a, a, a bit of why you feel you have learned some things about how we go about securing investment in fundraising from the board yeah I think you're right it's a massively important topic and I don't think enough people talk about it you know, we talk in conferences about how we won big corporate partnerships. So I talk a lot in conferences about how when I was at Plan UK, we won Barclays, AstraZeneca, Credit Suisse, CNN, Chelsea, Unilever, Record Bankers, CBRE, how we won our first million pound gift, how we grew our trust fundraising. You know, we talk about those stories and we talk about the pitches, but actually the most important ask that we made at Plan was to the trustees to invest in our new business fundraising mm -hmm. without that we couldn't have done anything else you know teams are at full capacity we hear it every day and without looking for something that unlocks an extra investment you can't do any of the forward-thinking progressive proactive stuff because you just don't have the time you don't have the resource mm -hmm. and i've done that at plan uk uh i did it recently at, at what is that shift of girl guides and girl scouts where it's such an incredible cause where Young women are doing these amazing things throughout the world. They're changing the law on child marriage. They are campaigning right now in Malaysia, actually, to, to, to outlaw child marriage. It's a huge problem. And yet we weren't doing enough proactively to raise money for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but I've also done it for a tiny, tiny charity, a char charity where we're, we're talking about £5,000 of investment. But at that charity, as the first ever full-time member of staff, that was a big thing. And the, the money was just for, you know, a subscription to trustfunding.org. It was for a computer and an internet connection because I'm genuinely that old. Yeah. Um, but it was still just important because without that investment, we wouldn't have unlocked the huge growth we had in that charity. We tripled the number of children we work with. And it started by asking the trustees to invest their reserves. So my understanding, top line, is three different organisations you've worked with, including that, that, that very small one initially, um, and then at Plan, uh, and, and now where you work right now, three times running, you felt you couldn't not, I mean, you didn't necessarily do it immediately, but there was a point when you worked in each of those places, you, you felt because I care about this mission and this course, I can't not try to get the resource to, to, to grow our ability to help. Uh, and it was also a sort of, a, I think the last time we spoke about it, it felt like a, almost a moral imperative. How can I not was the question that you felt burning in you. And then even if at the time you didn't have this recipe of you know, the, the four master steps or, or whatever it is that you and I worked out the other day, you just, it started from needing to, to at least ask and, and ask as confidently and persuasively as, as you could. First of all, do you want to just speak to that idea? And then after that, maybe I, I think our, our listener is, is going to be keen to hear what are those, those three or four things that you have found to be useful techniques in that process? But kind of what, what's your, your attitude to, to the, you know, if the listener is thinking, well, it's quite hard, um, maybe we should just play safe and keep, keep, keep 
keep on as we are, what would you say to them? <laughs> That's a good question. I think you're right. It, it starts from the cause. So if I think about my current role, uh, I can tell you stories of girl guides in Malta who have changed the law. GM. I've had the Maltese government talk to my team and say, it was your girl guides that enabled us to change the law to outlaw FGM for the first time three years ago. I've heard of girl guides in, in Togo who, uh, working with the UN, managed to train 50,000 teachers with no external funding, just, to, just their own proactive network on an anti-violence curriculum that's now taught in schools in Togo. I can tell you that you know a month ago, we had Girl Guides campaigning outside the Malaysian parliament with a, um, 156,000 signatures, not just from Girl Guides, but from youth, youth groups across Malaysia, saying we must end child marriage. There was a, a case in Malaysia of a 41-year-old man marrying a 12-year-old girl. And other 12-year-old girls who are in the Girl Guided movement say, that's, that's not what we want. We have to outlaw that. We have to close these loopholes in the law. And when you've got that amazing network of, in my case, young women all over the world doing amazing things, but it's massively underfunded and they're doing all these things on a shoestring, yeah. imagine what they could do if they had actually quite small amounts of money to bolster what they're doing. And then the question becomes, well, how are you going to do that? Are you going to squeeze your team even harder as if they're not working hard enough and the problem is that they're just a bit lazy, so we need to squeeze them harder and get more money out of them? Yeah. Or are we going to think, you know what, that's not, that's not reality. In order to get more return, you need more investment. Every business knows that. Every football club knows that. Every organization in the world knows that, except certain charities. Yeah. And we need to change that mindset because fundamentally it's a really obvious statement, but your income, your, your return is based on what you put in. Yeah. And you can have exceptions to that. There are people that manage to break the rules occasionally. Leicester managed to, to win the yeah. Premier League once. But if you look each year at how much teams invest and where they are on their Premier League table or what organizations invest in advertising and how many sales they get, it is directly correlative. And therefore, we have a responsibility to, to, to help our teams unlock that investment. Yeah, so a key bit of your advice the other day was that each time you've done it, you didn't know all of the how you were going to get there. Yeah. And yet somehow you needed to do this conjuring trick, the wrong metaphor, but you needed to have certainty and convey certainty that I'm going to get you these outcomes, even though at the time you didn't yet know, for instance, what proportion of that income would come from corporate versus trusts versus... Can you try and convey to us how you managed to pull that off? This is the myth, right? That uh, this is a conjuring trick or this is something magic that some people are doing and others, and others aren't. This is totally standard for every business in the world. If you invest in an IT um, infrastructure or solution, you don't know exactly your path of how you're going to get from A to B. You know where B is. You know what you need to get to. You need to have a fully integrated CRM solution or whatever it is. And your first step will be to recruit an IT project manager to help scope out the build. That's normal. And that's normal in every business in every walk of you know, every sector, you know, if you knew how to do it, <laughs> if all the steps were there, then you'd have done it already. You should know and you should have a good idea of what the expected return is and what your level of certainty is and why. So for us, it's because we have a great cause. We have all those different stories that I talked about and I could talk for hours just on those stories. And yet 
annually, if you looked at our average income from 2010 to 2016, we raised 1.7 million a year. And you tally up 150 countries, 10 million girls, these extraordinary stories of impact, mm. whether they're in America, Malawi, Madagascar, Malta, um, South America, etc. And you tally that with 1.7 million of external funding, it just doesn't make any sense. And therefore, we've got a big growth opportunity to do far more. And that's what we're therefore talking about the uh, the fact that we're underweight at the moment we're underperforming uh not that the team's underperforming but that the, the charity is in fundraising terms and we're looking for investment for us to take our first steps to remedy that so um if the listener had been considering building a case and going in and seeking extra investment because that's a way to do more good what i'm hearing from you is a couple of things which are fundamental number one is in order to get your own emotional fuel or emotional resource moral courage and so on starting with the difference you are making and therefore the difference you could make to even more lives and then after that moving into i i sense what you you've done when you've succeeded in this is you've you've almost you've built that logical graph with the numbers of what we have done so far with this amount of investment and projecting up how much more we would like to do is that roughly right yes but there's because you don't know what it is you're going to do you don't know what the next three years are going to look like politically economically socially or within your charity so you have to accept that what you can say is here's the profile of previous performance yes and i guess what i did is, is i asked the question of the trustees what do you see as the potential of this charity where do you think we should be if we're an organization that reaches all these girls and young women that does these incredible things to build the capacity of our member organizations who deliver phenomenal change to girls all over the world um what should we be bringing in what should we be raising on behalf of our members and to me the, the answer is very obviously more than 1.7 million and to most boards of trustees they'll say the same thing and they'll probably say no one's ever asked us that before or they haven't asked enough so you're getting them to think well what could we be you know in in some cases they would have said well they did say we want to be raising one pound per every girl we have or five pounds for every girl we have so that means we're a 10 million or a 50 million or a 100 million charity and that's where you're putting the the stakes yes once they're aligned with that vision and they're kind of dissatisfied with where they are at the moment, yeah. that's when you can outline yeah. steps for how you get there. And as you say, I, don't, I didn't know the plan in any of the cases that I, I did this. You know, I could have told you the process. I could have told you, right, we're going to prospect in these areas and we're going to look through these. Um, we believe our high potential areas here. We think we, we have a great fit here. But you don't really know until you start making those calls and testing the market. And you can't do that until you have a team. You know, in the case of Plan, when I joined Plan in 2012, you know, I was answering the phones. If, it was any, if there was a new business inquiry, it came through to me. So until the trustees invested in new business capacity of a proper team of people who are skilled, who have the knowledge, have the experience to drive that forward and who have the resource and the time, we're always going to be limited. So it, for me, it's about positioning that vision. And then all you have to do once they're on board with the vision is show that you have a complete and well thought through plan for your first steps. But it doesn't have to be complete because it is just the first steps. Yeah. Um, and 
we don't have time to make to, if this was a training session i'd make you say that whole question again but <laughs> for the listener what adam said about two minutes ago is one of the most important on bits in this whole idea is as the fundraising leader it's not for you to tell them it all but to open their minds and then put the ball in their court to ask them your equivalent of Adam's question along the lines of if we're this kind of organization that stands for this for these people where where do you think we should be because they are the board it is their responsibility to do the best they possibly can for these people uh, as long as you framed it right and then you confidently ask that question it seems to me that's what Adam did three times running and three times uh, in each of those three cases uh, that was a key step in helping the organization start the discussions and 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 that led to the decision that we needed hi it's rob and i wanted to quickly let you know about our two flagship programs designed to help you grow high value fundraising results that's major gifts mastery and corporate partnerships mastery which both start again in early may 2023 these programs help you make progress through a combination of masterclasses and individual coaching support. To give you a sense of the impact they can have, I've found it's most interesting to hear from people who've done the programs. So here's a brief clip from Grace Cannings, who you may remember from episode 112, and who recently completed Major Gifts Mastery. In this clip, she's talking about how the program helped not only her skills, but also her confidence. I think going back to being kind of more confident, I'd say that it's helped me become more calm in meetings with donors and I know I think it was maybe a couple of weeks after our first session I was in a meeting with a donor and managed to secure a 25k gift from them which was incredible and it was the first meeting I'd actually run by myself without anybody else from my team being there so it felt like a really big win for me and then also alongside that we've had more people renewing their donations and gifts and I think just generally the level of communication that I've been able to give with people has been great yeah I just implore anybody to go on this course it's been fantastic if you'd like to find out more about either of these two programs go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. I know there were several other things that you said to me before, Adam, were quite important along the way to ultimately get the decision. Do you want to say if, if there's another couple of those that, that you think would be useful for the listener to hear, what would they be? I guess the if, if I think about the worst thing you can do rather than the best thing, it's probably more helpful. So because this is what I did the first time I did it, to share this this story. So I was 23 or something. And I had no business running an organization. I was absolutely not qualified for it. Uh, but I gave a, <laughs> a very good bullshit interview and therefore ended up in this position that I was woefully unqualified for. And I made all the mistakes that um, you shouldn't really make. And the mistake I made when I was thinking about this investment that we need, I need a computer, I need a subscription to trust fundraising etc is that I picked off each one of the trustees and I thought okay you might go for it I don't think you will therefore I need to take you out for a coffee I need to understand what you're thinking I need to understand whether you like this other person on the board and the power play and how it's worked in the last 20 years and all those kind of board level relationships and actually none of that is my job and a I was really bad at it and b it's not my position it's not my place my place is to say that more is possible that we can get to a bigger place that we can do more as a charity and i've got a decent 
plan that's 70, 80% there. It's as much there as it can be. Um, that enables you to take that first steps of investment and that's all you know and then you need to use your trustees as ambassadors for you in getting that through and getting and working through that with us the board because it's their job to do the coffees and the drinks and the schmoozings and the whatever else yeah. coming from you it won't work yeah yeah and um, that makes sense and and you know just the way you outlined the case broadly of of who, who we are what what we stand for, what more could be done, the, the logic of the, the emotion of that and then the logic of that, more effort into those areas and less into the, all this exhausting, Absolutely. time-consuming, difficult thing that might, might, you know, a few, you know, politicians might, might have the skill level to get that done, but it would still take too much time. And, and it's, you know, doing it your way around, um, that's a really helpful because again, especially if, if the listener might be an experienced major gifts fundraiser, their default thing might be automatically to think more coffees and more. It was, more. It was for me as well, but it just happened to be wrong. Yeah, great. So um, I'm so glad you, you, you shared that little example. Um, I think before another thing you told me was, was just about belief, really. And I've alluded to, to certainty already, but just very briefly, what's your, your take on, on how important it is to to bolster your sense that this is absolutely the right thing to do. And I back, back us as a group and myself to at least try. I think that's a good question. And you need to be cognizant of where the organization is. So when I joined WAGS, which was only about a year ago, um, you know, I was, the, the organization was in a pretty messy place. So we'd lost something like 40 or 50% of our staff in a year. We had, um, actually in my, just in my role, we'd, I was the sixth person in two years to do my job. And on my, on my second day, my predecessor who had, who had asked to meet previously, um, said to me, Oh, well, actually I, I didn't want to meet you. I, I avoided meeting you because I didn't want to have to say that this is the worst job you'll ever do. <laughs> so, <laughs> There's this, you know, you have to be cognizant. If I come into that um, environment and ignore all that and just say, yeah, I definitely believe we can do this, it looks naive, it looks dumb. At the same time, even though there were all those issues, which hopefully are, you know, in a better, I hope in a better place now, there is, it's, it's where you point the camera. You know, if you're pointing the camera at those issues, you know, they're, there are some important reasons why uh, five successive people felt that yes. this wasn't the job for them. I, with my team, I think we're able to point the camera somewhere else at what this organization could be if we get it right and yeah. what we need in order to take those steps as a team yeah. to realize that potential. Yeah. So it's, you don't come in and say, I've never come in and said, said, I'm absolutely sure this will work. It definitely will. Just trust me. It'll be fine. Because you're playing with real genuine income that, is, that people have, have given you, the, that the organization is reliant on in terms of reserves. Yes. You, can't, you can't sort of just bullshit your way through of it and it's fine. Yeah. It needs to be based on where you are, but also you should be sure as a fundraising director that your team has more potential to raise more money with more investment 
if you're not sure of that, <laughs> if you're not sure that your cause is, is worthy of more investment or your team aren't the right people to deliver it, <laughs> you might want to look at the, at the job pages because it might be that you're in the wrong role. Yeah. I, I can't conceive of a situation where a fundraising director thinks, well, we're about right, you know, yeah, I reckon we're about right in terms of funding. It's fine. Yeah, our team isn't great, but I'm not going to change it. You know, that's just not, that's not what your job is. So you need to have a a lot of certainty that you're the right person to deliver that change. But I I think that is your job as a fundraising director. Yeah. I think the other thing you, you mentioned before is in terms of the timing being important. What did you mean by that in, in the context of seeking investment? I would say when you start a new job, that's to me the time that you need to be having this conversation. Not necessarily asking them, but one of your first um, jobs as a, as a fundraising lead coming in is to understand the appetite for investment. And that you shouldn't, you shouldn't miss that window. We aligned ours to our strategic planning cycle. Mm-hmm. So I asked for investment in the beginning of 2018 and we run on a three-year cycle that goes from 2018 to 2020. So it, it made sense. I think I would be imploring everyone that it's, it doesn't wait for the, you know, the magic mm-hmm. time when weather conditions are right and off the eastern seaboard, the full moon at three o'clock in the afternoon in eastern Savada. Yeah. I think it's imperative that you get in front of this and start um, positioning you and your team for investment. And I think that's true, whether you're a fundraising director, whether you're a manager, whether you're a head of department, whether you're a fundraising officer, that if you think more could be done in your area with a little bit more investment, it's beholden on you to outline the case for that investment and what you need to make it a reality. That makes sense. So just before we finish this topic, there may have been some other thing you're pretty experienced and pretty successful in in this area of leadership. Is there anything else that occurs to you that you think is interesting or useful for the, for the listener to bear in mind if they're taking it to heart and they, they, after this podcast, they're going to have a think or a conversation with a colleague about doing something about this idea. Is there anything else that, that hasn't come out yet in this conversation that you think would be useful? I think how you align it with the rest of your organization. You know, for me, the hardest part of fundraising is never raising the money. It's what that money is funding. Yeah. And I've worked at so many causes where that link is not right because we want the money so much that we're being led by our donors and what they want, not what actually our cause is all about. So we end up kind of selling ourselves and pretending something we're slightly different to. We are stretching our mission and our scope as a charity and fundamentally not doing the wrong things, but not doing the best things possible to help our beneficiaries. And so to me, it's working with the rest of the organization to put that case forward. So for example, what I mean is, uh, WAGs, I worked with the rest of the leadership team to say, okay, we're, we're not going to put loads of investment cases that compete with each other. We're going to put one investment case, or actually we, we, we integrated it, but we're going to put one investment case. And in that fundraising case, we're going to make clear that if we're successful in that fundraising, if that 350K of investment leads to 1.6 million of 
income and return. Here's what that 1.6 million will do. It will benefit our members in these ways. It will grow our capacity building infrastructure so that we can help our members get to a different stage in finance and governance and safeguarding. It will help our programs team in particular ways. So it's not just that you're raising, that's probably the biggest bit of my investment case. It wasn't, we can raise more money because I think everyone could raise more money. It's that there is a unique opportunity in this organization to raise more money for the right things that are going to make a big difference for, for most people, for our beneficiaries, in our case, for our members in order for them to make a difference for their beneficiaries. Yes. And because we were able to outline that, it then makes sense to the trustee. Whereas you can very easily otherwise end up with fundraising, making a case over here, marketing, saying something a bit different. Your different teams across the organization competing with each other instead of going in with an integrated ask as a, as a leadership team. Yeah, that makes sense. I need to stop us there, Adam. Thank you so much for all your ideas that you've shared with us today. So many great little stories and examples. Uh, and then also just some wonderful little tips. Um, I look forward to our next chat because I always learn so much when I, when I talk to you. Um, but until the next time, thank you for helping out the, the, the listeners. Um, and I look forward to speaking to you about more fundraising and leadership things another time. Thank you, Adam. Goodbye. My pleasure. So I hope you found Adam's ideas and examples as helpful as I did. If you'd like to go back to the key ideas we explore in this episode, do take a look at the show notes on our Brightspot website. If you're interested in the Breakfast Club for Directors and Heads of Fundraising, which we run every couple of months, and that's where Adam first shared these ideas, you can find out about that, as well as all of our other fundraising courses, our coaching, our mastery programs in major gifts, in corporate partnerships or in individual giving. You can find out about all of that stuff on our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. If you found today's episode helpful and if you think it would help other people too, please do spread the word and share it on. And finally, thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to sharing more Bright Spot stories to help you with your fundraising in the next episode. Mm-hmm.